uh, is Psalm 63, which is, in my opinion, uh, one of the most uplifting. It's filled with the promises of God and meditations on the excellence of God's love. So go ahead and open to Psalm 63. Um, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, I believe it's on page 449. Um, the book of Psalms is pretty much right smack dab in the middle of your Bible, and it's a pretty big book, so if you just open in the middle, you're likely to find it. Um, and while you're opening to that passage, let's talk a little bit about the context of this psalm. For many of the psalms in the Psalter, we don't know a lot about the historical context of uh, why or when it was written. But this one has a little helpful intro on it that says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now this is King David, who was the best of Israel's kings, often referred to as a man after God's own heart. That's not to say he didn't have his downfalls, because we certainly know that he did, but his love for God was unmatched among all of Israel's kings. David spent significant time in the Judean wilderness on two separate occasions, and neither of which were very good situations for him. Um, if you remember from First or Second Samuel, the first time he was out in the Judean wilderness was whenever he was being persecuted by the first king of Israel, Saul, who was something of a th father figure to David and had decided that David was too big of a threat to his lineage, to his throne, to his legacy, and so had uh, persecuted him, tried to kill him, and exiled him out into the Judean wilderness. The second time that David spent this much time out in the Judean wilderness was when his son Absalom uh, usurped his throne and disgraced David in a variety of ways. Um, both times, David spent a good amount of time out in the wilderness of Judah and had to rely uh, and rest on God to provide for his needs. There is some disagreement among scholars about when David wrote this psalm, whether or not it was the first or the second time that he was out uh, in the Judean wilderness. Um, my thoughts on the argument are pretty plain. I think it's more likely that David wrote this whenever he was being, uh, whenever he was facing Absalom's rebellion, because in verse 11 he appears to call himself the king, and whenever he was being persecuted by Saul, he wasn't the king yet. So let's read what David wrote while he was in the midst of this persecution. Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down, and down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. Let's go ahead and walk back through this psalm line by line to really delve into what David is saying here. Regarding the first line, O oh God, you are my God, uh, an interesting distinction is drawn. David seems to acknowledge God as God and then acknowledge God as my God. This seems peculiar. Uh, what is the point of asserting that God is both God and my God? Or why does he feel the need to tell God that he's my God. And the question must be asked, can you recognize God as God and yet not treat him as your God? 
Can you know that God is God and yet not act as though he is? Yes, of course. I'd be willing to bet that anyone who's tried to follow God would know this truth. It is all too common for humans to make their gods out of things that are not God. So common, actually, that I'd be willing to bet that no one in this room is innocent of it. We make gods out of entertainment, money, power, lust, attention, control, and even deceptively, we can make a god out of religion or doctrine. We make gods out of these things because even while we know that they are not actually God, we're placing them in an authoritative role that God should have in our lives. Whenever we bend to the will of these things at the expense of following and obeying God's word, we make that thing God. If you have ever lied to preserve your self-image, you've made your self-image God. If you've ever insulted or belittled someone out of passion or anger, then you have made those passions your God. If you've ever avoided serving or helping someone in need in order to pursue your own comfort, you've made comfort your God. Here David opens his prayer by rejecting all of that. He says, I do not bow to the God of power. I do not bow to the God of lust. I do not bow to the God of greed or hate or retribution, but I bow to the God of Abraham. This is an excellent way to start your prayers, by the way. Relinquish your allegiances to other things that may occupy that place of God in your life. Say, God, these things are not my God. You are my God. David goes on to say, Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now the illuminating thing about this verse is that we know that uh, David is actually in a dry and weary land where there is no water while he's writing it. Um, he's currently experiencing the real physical fatigue that he uses here as a metaphor for his need for God. That's pretty remarkable if you ask me. I don't think I've ever done something like that. Like, there is no thirst or sense of fatigue like that of a person who is walking around in the desert. It's like incomparable. For him to reflect on that and say, this is what needing God is like. This is what my soul feels like down in its deepest recesses. That's what my need for God is like. Is really remarkable. It demonstrates a remarkable sense of wherewithal and spiritual attentiveness. Like, have you ever been like really, really hungry? Like, haven't eaten all day and thought, yeah, this hunger, that's, that's like how I need God. That's how like my soul needs God. I mean, I know I'm starving right now, but what I really need is some time in the word and prayer. I've never thought that. And I've never suffered nearly as bad as David is here. However, David's metaphor here is illuminating for another reason. This metaphor of God being the satisfaction of all our needs actually runs all throughout Scripture. You can think of Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, if you drink of this living water, you will never thirst again, right? That's a spiritual reality fulfilling a physical need. God is the satisfaction of all our physical needs. Let me say that again. God is the satisfaction of all our needs, actually, not just the physical ones. Every single need we have is satisfied in God. Now, I'm not saying that if you're a Christian, you can stop eating and drinking and, you know, just peace out. Because um, it is good and glorifying to God to not starve yourself to death and to take care of your body. But the fact that you feel hunger or thirst points ultimately to your need for God. God wove physical needs into creation. He created your needs for two purposes. One, so that you would realize that God is providing for them. So that you would recognize that, oh, every single need I have, whether it's hunger or thirst or fatigue, God is providing for them. 
And two, so that you would know what it feels like to need something, so that you would know what it feels like to viscerally need something down deep in your bones or else you might lose yourself. You only have the privilege of feeling that so that you can better understand your actual need for God. You only feel thirst so that you can understand what it's like for a need to be unfulfilled, to know what it feels like to have a dry mouth, and then how good it is to have that thirst quenched. In the same way, you have a need for God, and unfulfilled it is far, far more devastating than any other physical need you have. But to have it quenched is far, far greater as well. In this way, God is the ultimate satisfaction of all your needs. Because every need you feel points to your need of him. It's only present so that you would realize what a need feels like and how desperate your need is for God. So David earnestly seeks after God, like he's seeking after water in a dry land. He then says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This passage, I, like, I don't even know how to describe the kind of feeling that it gives me. It's like there's some sort of like weight in my chest that I have to like breathe in to like catch. I don't, I don't know how to put words into what I feel about it. It's some like form of excited anticipation, almost like the air is sweet and I need to suck more in to fill my chest with it, but I can't get enough. It's because I know that the love of the Lord is better than life. And what that excited anticipation does is it makes me want to yell or run or perhaps even sing. That's what it makes David appear to want. As he goes on to say, my lips will praise you. The sanctuary of the tabernacle or temple was the holiest place where the Ark of the Covenant rested, where the very presence of God existed among God's people. And basically David says here that he has seen the greatness of God's glory and the magnificence of the sanctuary and in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there is some cultural disconnect between us and David here. So I don't think we have any sort of physical object that we esteem as highly as the Israelites esteemed the Ark of the Covenant. Because I feel like if a lot of us walked into a room that actually held the real Ark of the Covenant, we'd be like, hey, that's a pretty cool box. Like, it's got an ornate design. Did you get that from the Indiana Jones set or something like that? It wouldn't be culturally significant to us in the same way that it is to David. But we still have beheld God's power and glory. And honestly, the best way I figured out to do this is to go and spend time in nature, particularly in the mountains, um, <laughs> experiencing the power and majesty of the, of the mountains reveals God's majesty in a way that I haven't found anything else does. Um, last week I was in Glacier National Park with a buddy of mine and we went hiking every day we were there. We were dead tired by the last day because we'd hiked so much. And we were hiking so much because there was such a hunger to see as much of God's creation as possible, to experience God's power and glory as revealed in creation. Now my buddy might want to disagree with that because he's not a Christian, but whether he knows it or not, that's why he was out there too. He wanted to behold God's power and glory as revealed in creation. Not only is God powerful and glorious, but he is also loving. His love is steadfast, deep, and profound. His love is better than life. Guys, I don't know if you know this, but life's pretty good. Like, why do you think we fight so hard to stay alive? It's because life is pretty good. 
When we stop looking at the trials we face every day and being so mentally consumed with them, we begin to realize how many good things there are about just living. You ever watch one of those nature documentaries where like the predator is hunting the prey? Like the prey like fights, like they fight hard to keep their lives. They run hard to keep their lives because they know it's so much better than the alternative. A few weeks ago, David Leaders and I were watching a video of a mouse being fed to a snapping turtle. I'm not gonna give you the details on this video. It was pretty gross. Um, but there's a point in the video <laughs> where the mouse is still conscious and able to move, but like he's like not gonna survive. Like he's pretty much done. Um, and still, he swims to the top of the tank and is trying to get away from this turtle, like fighting for his life because he even knows in his maimed state it's better than the alternative. There's also a suicide prevention speaker named Kevin Hines who in the year 2000 jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. And he survived the impact because as soon as he jumped he realized, I don't wanna die. Like just living, even with depression, even with bipolar disorder is better than death. And he rotated his body to let the le his legs take the impact. I know it may not always feel like it, but life is good. And when you're up against the wall with, regarding to choosing, with regard to choosing life and death, you see it more clearly than ever. Now, King David has been up against this wall quite a bit, and he recognizes the goodness of life, and he says that the love of God is better than that. It's better than life. Imagine like the best thing you've ever experienced. God's love, better than that, by far. His love is better than that once-in-a-lifetime meal. His love is better than that sense of joyous community you get when you spend time with friends or family. His love is better than the elation of a celebration like a wedding or a birthday. His love is better than sexual intimacy and release. His love is better than the sense of accomplishment from your greatest achievement. His love is better than the validation and appreciation from others. His love is better than the way that any individual person might make you feel, whether that's your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your son or your daughter. His love is better than that. It's better than all of that and more. David knew all of those joys, actually, and he knew that God's love is better than even that. Not only is it better than all of those, just as something to enjoy, it's also steadfast. It remains. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's Romans 8, 38 through 39. God's love is better than all this, and it remains on those who love him forever. This truth builds up that excited anticipation on my chest again for the fullest experience of God's love that I can look forward to, undistracted by the things of this world. Man, I am ready. Like, whenever Jesus decides to take me home, I'm ready. You're like, Mason, you're so young. Don't you want to live your life first? And honestly, I'll take whatever God has planned for me. If I die tomorrow and go to be with him, great. Guess what I lost out on? Nothing. I lost out on nothing because I have the best thing. If he lets me live 80 more years and I get to meet my great-grandkids, wonderful. I still have an eternity of the best thing waiting for me. As Paul puts in Philippians 1, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is to have an opportunity to make the name of Christ known on earth and to walk in accordance with his teachings. To die is to gain the fullest knowledge and experience 
of the love of God. As a follower of Christ, I cannot lose. This is one of those rare win-win situations where there's no bad option here for those who have put their faith in Christ. So what do we do with this excited anticipation in the meantime, that, that gusto that we have from, from dwelling on these truths? We worship. That's what David does with his. Recognizing the power, glory, and steadfast love of the Lord, his lips pray, give praise to God. This is the heart from which we worship, a joyous gratefulness for the love of God and in recognition of his power and glory. We should embrace God this way. David says, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David here commits to worshiping God for the rest of his life. He says, God, your love is steadfast. So will be my worship. God, your love never fails. Neither will my worship. I will bless you or praise you as long as I live. In his name, we lift our hands. Worship is responding to God's revelation of himself in a way that brings glory to his name. If you see Jesus and follow him, that is a form of worship. If you're delighted with God's attributes and you sing about them, that's worship. If you read God's word and understand his commands and obey, then you are responding to God's revelation of himself in a way that glorifies him. That's worship. It is the outward expression of your inward state of recognizing the goodness and greatness of God. A lot of people won't understand this, but we are always responding to God. We are always responding at all points to God. We are always either ascribing God his glory or we aren't. You cannot simply not respond. You cannot simply stay neutral because God is constantly revealing himself in all creation, according to Romans 1. Even in your very existence, he has revealed his power. So we should exist in a manner that brings God glory to his name. Live and walk with God personally and with holiness. Lift your hands in his name and sing his praises. David then continues in his worship to God by expressing his longing for God. He says, uh, verse 5. Sorry, I got lost. Uh, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed, and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David begins expressing faith and longing here by comparing the fulfillment of God's presence to a feast that his soul eats. Think of Thanksgiving afternoon when you've had your fill, but ideally you're not overstuffed, and... You're watching football, or if you're like me, you're on your phone while your family's watching football. And uh, you're all about to slip into your respective turkey comas. Um, that sense of peace and satisfaction and unhurriedness, that's what David anticipates will be in the deepest recesses of his soul as he stands in the presence of God. As he enjoys the love that is better than life. And we can and should have hope for that as well for the joy and peace that comes with the love of the Lord. I know I'm looking forward to that feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. David then gives us a little glimpse into his before-bed routine. He is remembering God and meditating on him in the watches of the night. That is uh, when it's his shift to stay up at night and guard the camp. And I think that this should be prescriptive for us in some sense. 
I have really, really bad bedtime tendencies, as some of my friends know. I tend to fall asleep listening to like a TV show in the background, um, which is awful for your sleep quality, by the way, don't do it. Um, but it is, I think, pretty common among my generation to, to pick a show and like let it run in the background just for the white noise, basically. And I can't help but think how much better it would be if, if instead of listening to you know, some random TV show, I was praying instead. If I laid down, chose a verse from the Bible, closed my eyes, and squeezed every bit of truth out of it that I could as I was drifting off to sleep. This would be a significant improvement for a number of reasons. For one thing, the shows I'm falling asleep to don't contain biblical morals, like hardly ever. Um, and I know that uh, their worldviews are subconsciously taking hold as I sleep. By the way, if you think that the ideas and the things that you watch don't affect you, like, think again. There's, one, there's a reason that there's so much money in advertising. That's besides the point, though. Uh, the point David is making here is that dwelling on the things of the Lord is best practice. This is a serious challenge. This week, go to bed um, and meditate on a verse or a passage, or just pray and see what it does for your sleep. At the end of this section, David begins to reflect on how God protects and provides for him. This is a topic that David is intimately familiar with and that he writes psalms about quite a bit. Remember, David has had a storied life. He's had to trust God with a lot up until this point. His battle with Goliath, his persecution and exile at the hands of Saul, his wars with the Philistines, he knows that God is with him. He's had to rely on him a lot. And here he expresses that through these few lines. You have been my help, and your right hand upholds me. It should be of note that in these lines, both sides of the relationship are represented. David says, for you have been my help, and so he turns and worships. Similarly, David's soul clings to God, and in turn, God's right hand upholds him. Now, our interaction with God is not transactional. That's very important to understand. It's relational. It's not transactional. It's relational, meaning that God draws near to us as we draw near to him. This is a relationship, not a purchase or a business arrangement. No, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours sort of uh, dealings going on. This is mutual love expressing itself through the dynamic interchange of worship and providence. This is instructive for us. We all too often want to treat God like a vending machine. We can deceive ourselves and think, okay, I put my coins in this week. I went to church. I fasted for a day. I read my Bible. I'm going to hit B6 in my petitionary prayer and get my Snickers or whatever. That is not how God interacts with us. The Bible most often treats the relationship of the church, that's us, with God as a marriage He's collectively our husband, our spouse, right? Can you imagine if you treated your marriage as a vending machine, how poorly that would go? I'm not even going to list examples because your imagination is going to do a better job than whatever I'm allowed to say up here. So um, <laughs> we have a relationship with God, not a business transaction. In light of that, though, God does do things for us as we fall more and more in love with each other. You could say that one of God's love languages is acts of service. So to show his love for you, he does serve you. He sent his son not to be served, but to serve, right? Trying to divorce God's acts of, acts of service for us from our relationship with him is how so many people come to treat God like a vending machine. David expresses well his relationship with God. It's not a business transaction. To have your soul cling to God is a deeply intimate statement. 
Now remember, David is currently fleeing from Absalom's rebellion. They are literally hunting him. So he writes this. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. In David's story, this portion of the prayer has a lot of meaning. It reveals his faith in God to preserve him and deliver him from the enemies that are seeking to destroy him. He knows that they will be defeated. It's not a question in his mind. He knows that they're going to be defeated. It isn't a request that he's making to God. He's pronouncing what will happen next. David has seen God deliver him numerous times before, and he has faith that it will happen again. He boldly claims the path that God has laid out for him. Now, to us, a passage like this makes sense in the story of David, but it's hard to connect with on a personal level. Because I don't know about you guys, but I've never had someone attempt to kill me. Like, not even once, not in my entire life has anyone tried to kill me. So it can be difficult to connect with David's desperation and subsequent confidence in God here. That sense of peace, of complacency with the world that I get to enjoy is one of the most effective lies that I've ever believed. See, there is someone who seeks to destroy my life, and he seeks to destroy yours as well. He speaks lies to me and about me to others, and he does the same for you. The Bible often just refers to him as the enemy, that spiritual enemy of the church, the adversary, the, the Satan. He, the father of lies, has convinced our entire culture that we are not in a spiritual battle for our souls, for our very lives. He's even convinced many Christians of this in a practical sense. We may know on a surface level that the enemy wants to destroy us, but we rarely pray against his advances or the holds that he has in our lives. We rarely recognize our personal trials as being part of a larger spiritual war for God's people, but they are. He is actively seeking your destruction. The fate that he desires to bring you is far more dangerous than the one that Absalom sought for David. So when you come to passages like this, remember that the enemy is prowling at the gate and he wants to kill you. I'm sure you've been recommended this book a hundred times, but if you haven't read it by now, you should read it. Um, the Screwtape Letters is, uh, by C.S. Lewis is a very good book on, um, to, to engage your mind with the spiritual war that's really going on around us to remind you that the enemy is prowling at the gate and wants to kill you. But also rejoice, because everything David claims here about those in Absalom's rebellion is true for that enemy as well. He will go down into the depths of the earth. He will be given over to the power of the sword. He will be a portion for jackals, which are like wild dogs, by the way. Um, he is a liar, and his mouth will be shut. This enemy that plagues us in ways that we don't even realize right now has a fate awaiting him that is worse than death, and he cannot escape. Christ is victorious, and he will be victorious. That last verse also has a double meaning along these lines. Certainly when, uh, certainly when David returns to his throne as king, he will rejoice in God, and those who pledge their fealty to him will exult. That is to say, they will show some sort of like, triumphant elation, some sort of joy. David will return as conqueror once again, having quashed a rebellion. But this verse also calls forth to our true king, Jesus, our Lord of lords. He shall return, and in doing so, will bring glory to God, certainly rejoicing in the glorious sovereignty of his father. But all of us, 
who swear by him will also exult. We will also experience that triumphant elation, that joy. We will experience the joy of knowing Jesus is alive and he reigns on his throne. So I ask you, do you swear by him? Do you swear fealty to the king? Do you know the love that is better than life? That love that has been best revealed to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. This wise and strange itinerant preacher who wandered Galilee 2,000 years ago, who laid down his life for the sake of those he loved, he knew that there was no path to life without his sacrifice, so he gladly went to the cross, the worst death imaginable. He did this because he knew that the love of the Lord is better than life. And he wanted to lay down his life so that we might experience the love of the Lord in a new and profound way. He rose again, confirming all that he had preached and revealing himself to be God in the flesh. If you swear by that king, then you have immense peace and joy awaiting you. You can be assured of that. If you have not yet sworn by that king, or you don't know what that means to do that, come grab me after the service, or one of our elders, Nick or Jared, or the person that you came with. We would love to talk to you about what that looks like. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for your word, for revealing to us a love that is better than life, for reminding us that there is an enemy that seeks to destroy us, that wants to drag us to the grave and never let us be reunited with you. God, deliver us from his advances. We readily await your kingdom, O Lord. We pray that we would look upon your steadfast love as, hope, as our hope for life every day. We pray that we would turn to you as our refuge and protector in times of trials. We pray that, as David was, we would be people truly after your heart. It's in King Jesus' name we pray. Amen.